Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Well, isn't it amazing that this weekend, in spite of everything that's happened this year, that over 200 students from uh, Campus Bible Study, students and grads, can go away in small groups like the one that you're a part of right now, thinking together, hearing from God's Word together, and perhaps even planning your lives together on how to serve Jesus uh, as best as you can. Now, I know that among us, uh, there are people here, there's there's a big range of people here, There are those who have been thinking about full-time ministry for a long time now, thinking about mission work. But maybe this is your third, fourth, fifth lift conference, and so you're quite used to it. But there are some of you, and I know, who haven't really thought very much about this. Uh, And maybe I'm talking to you. This is your first lift conference, and maybe you're not even sure why you've been invited or why you've decided to come along. Look, that's okay. But for you in particular, uh, let me explain what this weekend is not about and then what it is about. Firstly, this weekend is not about locking you in. It's not about locking you in to do a traineeship with Campus Bible Study or locking you in to go to more college or locking you in to go to uh, be a missionary with CMS in, in East Asia. That's not what this weekend is hoping to achieve. Uh, Nobody is sealing anything in ink or with their blood this weekend. Actually, we don't use the blood stuff anymore. It's a a bit messy, Uh, OH&S stuff, that sort of thing. But rest assured, just because you're here, it doesn't mean you've entered into any kind of contract. So relax. And neither is this weekend about guilt-tripping people into ministry. It's not about making those who decided not to go into full-time paid ministry feel like they've let the team down or that somehow they are second-class Christians. Uh, This is not a weekend that's trying to tell you that there is no value working as a doctor or a lawyer or or as an accountant or even as an electrical engineer. We all need somebody to change the light bulbs and know how to fix the toasters. This weekend is not about bashing or shaming Christians in the workplace. It's okay to become somebody who doesn't go into full-time ministry. So let's clear that up right now. It's okay to be a Christian and not be in full-time paid ministry. And the final thing that this weekend is not about is that it's not just, um, how do I put it? It's, It's not about you. Uh, Certainly, it's not about me. Um, The reason why we really wanted you to make sure you can go away this weekend with with other people is because we really don't want you to be thinking about your life by yourself, independent of others. Or perhaps if you're an Asian, uh, we really don't want you to only ever think or hear from your parents' opinions only. It's good, of course, to take responsibility for your actions, for your lives. But taking responsibility for your actions doesn't mean you don't ever listen to other people's advice. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 12, verse 15, it says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And here's the corollary, if you like. 
of all of that. We really also don't want you to look at other people's lives this weekend and think that you have no responsibility or that you can't make any contribution or add your voice to how they live it out. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't say it's the person who crosses to the other side of the road when they see somebody in need. Too many times in our world, the world tells us that it's better to let other people live their own lives. But in the Bible, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. That's in Exodus chapter 23. Now, if that's what you do with your enemy's ox, how much more should you bring back a friend if you see him or her going astray? And I'm not talking about bringing your friend back to himself or herself. The one we should be bringing each other back to is, of course, to God. The one whom we all belong to. You see, this weekend, it's not about locking people into full-time ministry or making people feel guilty if they end up using their degrees. Those aren't the goals of this weekend. This weekend is about bringing back the ox and bringing back the ass and giving it back to God and giving it for Him to use of us as He will. And we're going to do that by looking at the gospel, and we need God's help. So please join me as we pray to Him. Let's pray. Father God, You made the world and You made us. And in the same way that we had nothing to do with our own birth, we thank You that whilst we were weak, whilst we were powerless, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So please, by the power of of your words, spirited out by you, help us to singly, sim single-mindedly live for him who died for us and was risen from the dead. Amen. Well, the theme of this weekend is Know and Tell the Gospel. If you hadn't realized it, it's um, a reference, of course, to a, a little book, a great little book published by Matthias Media, uh, written by the late Sydney evangelist, John Chapman. Now, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you should grab one. But it's, it's not just a great book. It's a, it's a great title, and that's why I stole it. Because in this title, we are reminded that the gospel isn't just something that you either know about or you tell others about. It's not know or tell the gospel. That word and reminds us that the gospel mustn't just be understood, but once you get it, you give it away. Once you know it, that's when you tell it. But why? Why is it so necessary for those who know the gospel to tell the gospel? And in a conference like this weekend, looking into full-time ministry, and perhaps with a group like, like yourselves, people who really should already know the gospel, perhaps you're wondering, why are we spending this weekend focusing again on something so basic, the gospel, and on an activity that seems so narrow 
evangelism? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to look at different parts of the Bible. But to begin with, let's go to that amazing explanation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But pay attention, won't you, firstly to the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and if you can read with me from verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gages, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, before we continue on in that passage and hear what Paul describes as the gospel, notice the context that is leading Paul to go and explain the gospel that he preaches. The context is that Paul has heard that the Corinthians were arguing over their leaders. They were arguing about their leaders, about which leader was best, about which leader were wisest, or was wisest, and about which leader was the, perhaps the more eloquent. In verses 11 and 12, you can see there, Paul mentions that in Corinth, there were some who followed one leader and some who followed another leader. And it could be that there were really four groups of people. Those who followed Paul, those who followed Apollos, those who followed Cephas or Peter, and perhaps the super spiritual who say they only follow Christ. But it could also be that Paul is just using these names of, of people that they know in place of the real names of, of perhaps some Corinthian leaders that people were following. Maybe. Now, without being certain of all the details, what we can confidently say is that the church in Corinth were divided over their leaders. Leaders who, perhaps, they thought cared about how many people they were baptizing in their own name. But notice what Paul says, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you, or at least not many of you. Not that he remembers, but Paul thanks God that he didn't baptize many. Why? Verse 15, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. Now, this idea of name is quite interesting. Back in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, have a quick look there. Paul describes the Christians everywhere as those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Or in verse 10, have a look, as Paul appeals to the believers in Corinth, Notice what he appeals to. He does so by appealing to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the significance of a name? And why 
Is it so abhorrent, so, so unimaginable for Paul to baptize anyone into his name? Well, a person's name in the Bible is very significant. Some of us looked at this at core theology, this term. In many cases, a name, it describes both who a person is or who they ought to be, and very often it carries with it their reputation as well. Take Adam. Adam means human or humankind. And interestingly, Adama means ground or dirt. That's where he came from and that's where Adam, well, that's what Adam has to take care of. Or take Abraham. Abraham, that's uh, Abraham's name originally, means exalted father. But after God makes the promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as many as the stars, Abraham's name was changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations. And then, of course, there is in the book of Judges, uh, perhaps the, the best name in the whole of the Bible, a man whose name is Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Aram Naharaim. Now, at that time in the Bible, when Israel had sinned really, really badly against God, God sends Cushan Rishathaim as the man who was to punish Israel. And what kind of a man was Cushan Rishathaim? Well, Cushan Rishathaim, I'm going to just keep saying that name because it's so cool, uh, very likely his name means, and it almost sounds what it means, Kushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim means Kushan of double wickedness. How about that for a name? But the most important name, of course, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is the name Yahweh. That personal name of God that in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, is, is represented by the capital uh, L-O-R-D, that, that all capital word Lord. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the unique name of the Creator God. It is the unique name of the God who defeated the armies of Pharaoh and of the gods of Egypt. It is the unique name of the God who redeems Israel. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the name whose meaning is equivalent to His goodness, His glory and His reputation. And so when Moses asks God to show him his glory in Exodus chapter 33, God replied and said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is embedded in the name of God is Yahweh his name character, who he is and what he is like. Which is why it was an honor if you were of the tribe of the Levites amongst the tribes of Israel. Yes, unlike everybody else, every, unlike every other Israelite, you were given no land when you entered the promised land, which, which sounds a bit like a bit of a bummer if you're an Israelite because you've been traveling for 40 years and, to get into the promised land, and then when you get there, you don't get the land itself. But God says, no land for you. 
And if you're an Israelite, a Levite in particular, it sounds like everybody else is getting an inheritance except you. But that's not true. You might not have any land, but you did have an inheritance. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 2, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers, but Yahweh is their inheritance, as he promised them. Now, what did it mean for the Levites to have Yahweh as their inheritance? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 5, it goes on and it says this, For Yahweh your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of Yahweh, him and his sons for all time. Can you hear what the inheritance of Yahweh looked like for the Levites? They got to minister, they got to serve in the name of Yahweh. It was a privilege. It was an honor. It was better than having your own real estate or property because to minister in the name of Yahweh meant you were chosen to serve the God of the universe. You read about this phrase in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, on the lips of David as he challenges the giant Goliath. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh, of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And then he goes on and he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and He will give you into our hands. Did you notice what David meant when he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord? Yes, it will be David whose hands will strike down and cut off Goliath's head, but David says, it is Yahweh who will make this possible. It is Yahweh whose battle this is, because it is Yahweh whom David at the end represents and fights for and, and this is important, who gives him the victory. Why? Well, verse 46 there. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Or remember, finally, the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. When he goes head to head with the 450 prophets of the God whose name was Baal, listen to how Elijah describes his challenge to them. 1 Kings chapter 18. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left, a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers... 
by fire, he is God. And of course, all the people answered, it is well spoken. And then you read on, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And so they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, of course, after this, we get to the very fun part where Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal. And he asks them, has, gone, uh, has Baal gone out to the bathroom or, or is he asleep? And when the prophets then start cutting themselves to get Baal's attention, and there was still nothing, well, then it was Elijah's turn. And so Elijah prepares his altar, and he says it's the altar in the name of Yahweh. He makes a trench around it, he places some wood, and then places a bull on the wood. He asks for four jars full of water to be poured over the offering and the wood and everything else, not once, not twice, but three times. And there was so much water spills everywhere that we're told that even the trenches were full of water. And then in verse 36, Elijah prays, and this is his prayer. He says, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then we read, then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and, listen to what they say, they said, the Lord Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Friends, can you see in these passages... How for the Levites, for David, and for Elijah, their names did not matter. Their own names was never their focus. Sure, the Levites were to be Yahweh's priests, and David would become Yahweh's king, and Elijah was Yahweh's prophet. But the Levites, David, and Elijah were nothing if not for the fact that they belonged to Yahweh. They served Yahweh. Now, before we leave this uh, fun excursus into the Old Testament and come back again to 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to look at one last passage, and it's a passage that we sort of looked at at core theology this term. But turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Because here we see not just certain individuals being concerned about God's name, but we read that God Himself is concerned about his name. Hopefully that's long enough for you to find Ezekiel. Ezekiel is after Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. If you've gone to Daniel, you've gone too far. So Ezekiel chapter 36. Now lots of us may know Ezekiel chapter 36 because of the famous promises that's there in verse 26. You can see it there, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now this is, of course, the promise that uh, when you get to the New Testament, is fulfilled when the Holy Spirit is poured out 
on all believers, on all who trust in Jesus and are saved. But in this context, this promise of a changed heart and of salvation, well, in Ezekiel chapter 36, the salvation of God's people, it is secondary. It isn't the focus, but the means through which God vindicates or restores again the reputation of His holy name. You see, Israel, uh, when they were in the promised land, had sinned again and again and again. And so look down at verse 17 there. You can see Israel had not valued human life. They had shed blood. Israel had bowed down to all kinds of idols. So God, verses 18 and, and, and 19, we can see there, in His righteous anger, had scattered Israel away from the promised land. But even though that's what Israel deserved, have a look at verse 20. When they went into these different nations, and as the people of the nations met and heard about the Israelites, how they had been removed from their land, instead of saying, Fellas, why are you so stupid? You had Yahweh, the, the greatest of all gods, and He had blessed you with that brilliant land. Why did you throw it all, all away? Why weren't you faithful to Yahweh? Instead of the nations saying that and understanding God's holiness and His righteousness and His wrath. In verse 20, But when the Israelites came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh. And yet they had to go out of his land. Friends, if you were an Israelite and you'd been conquered by other nations, and you'd been made prisoners and, and taken away and exiled in, in a faraway land, what kind of concerns do you think you might have? What, what do you imagine, what do you hope your God would be concerned about at this time? Well, verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh, the, the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which had been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. And here's that verse, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you, you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all, all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a fresh heart of flesh, and I will put my spirits within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundance and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundance, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Which all sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? Verse 31. 
then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and, and, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Or finally, jump down to verse 36. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. And then again right at the end in verse 38. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Friends, it's an amazing passage, isn't it? It's a bit like being on a roller coaster ride. There you were at the beginning feeling quite low, and then you have this promise of being saved and returning to paradise. And then you're reminded of how abominable and despicable you are and how terrible are your sins. But then you are reminded that actually it's all about God, it's all about Yahweh, about His reputation, about His name, Yahweh being praised among the nations. And I wonder, I wonder how much of that you remember. How much of that is on your mind as you think about evangelism, as you think about your ministry, your plans, and as you think about the message of the gospel? Who are you concerned most about this weekend? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're not going to be looking at uh, any other passages anymore, so if, please flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And with all of that in the background, let's read this chapter with, with fresh eyes. Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gages, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now let's go on, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Well, pause. Let's stop here for a bit. Can you hear what Paul is saying? Evangelism, Christian ministry, preaching, it cannot be about you. The moment you make ministry about you, well, that's the moment you empty the cross of Christ of its power. You see, it's a huge temptation, isn't it? It's an enormous temptation to not think that, that the speaker or, or the preacher, his or her giftedness, their personality, their accomplishments, is what will convince sinners to follow Christ. 
You know, hey, guess who's coming to do the evangelistic talk next weekend at my church? I heard he's really funny. Or, oh wow, is she really going to be the one doing the talk? I heard she's so clever, I heard she's got several PhDs. Or, who? Uh, who's that? Do, do you have a picture? Oh, uh, uh, is that who? Charles? Nah, look, I was thinking of bringing a friend, but uh, maybe when Carl comes back next week. Friends, it's easy to subconsciously be thinking that the power comes from the preacher. But Christ did not send Paul to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. Christ did not send Paul to wow the crowds with his brains or with his charming personality or with a list of the, the sacrifices he's had to make to give up and in order to enter full-time ministry. Christ sent Paul to preach Christ, not Paul. And not just Christ, but Christ crucified. A foolish message if ever there was one. The death of a man on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago that takes away the sins of the world, takes away your sins, my sin, makes you right with God because what? He, he is God? Look, unless you believe it, of course, let's be honest. It just sounds, hashtag South Park episode on Mormons, dum 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 dum. To tell people to give up your life, to be willing to lose everything, to be ready to be laughed at, to be imprisoned, to die in the name of a man called Jesus, because he is the king of the universe, because he got killed and rose again, and how, how do I know? Well, it's written in this book. Well, friends, for a lot of people, if you haven't spoken to people outside of your Zoom church for a while, you need to get out there. They think we're crazy. And they think the message of the Bible is crazy. But to us who are being saved, to them who are being saved, it is the power of God. But not just the power, it is also the wisdom of God. Have a look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Friends, how does saving people through the message of a crucified king show God's wisdom? Well, it shows the wisdom of God because the message of the cross, it pulls the rug from underneath the false gods, the idols of this world. You see, what does the world worship instead of Yahweh? What are the false gods of our age? Who are the demigods of today? Well, in our world, people worship power, don't they? People worship power and the things that give people power. People don't actually love money, I don't think. They love what money can do. And that's also why people love technology and need to upgrade to the latest iPhone 452XXL, whatever it is, because newer technology often means you can do more stuff. 
And so in this world, people who have made a name for themselves are those who are powerful. Powerful people, influential people, the people who make things happen. The other idol this world worships is wisdom or intelligence, or in the university context, those who are naturally geniuses. The clever ones are our demigods. The intellectuals are the ones we reward and respect. Yes, those who work hard and get good grades, we also admire. But very little respect is there for those who work hard and are faithful but are below average, or at best, mediocre. <laughs> but here is God's wisdom. Here is where the gospel of the cross turns the idols of the world on their heads. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? In the Lord. Now this past month, for a variety of reasons, don't judge me, but I've subscribed to Amazon Prime. I said, don't judge me. Now, one of the side perks, as you probably know with Prime, is that uh, you also get this thing called Prime Music. And being an uncool Christian, I listen to the Christian playlists. And there's an Amazon original song by a group called Casting Crowns called Only Jesus. Now, I'd love to be able to play it for you, but there's probably some copyright stuff. But I love the song because of the words, especially the chorus, because these words are words that I struggle to sing, but I know I ought to. The first verse goes like this. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers, but all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make the name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And then the second verse. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all that really mattered, did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? And then here's the chorus. And I, 
I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to Him. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only name to remember. Friends, this weekend, as we think together about ministry, about our life plans, about the gospel and evangelism, let's get this right. It's not really about you. It's not even mostly about the needs of the nations and the millions who are lost without Christ. The great privilege of ministry is that we are servants of Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, you've only got one life to live. Will you let every second point to Him? Jesus is the only name to remember. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word reminds and humbles us again to see ourselves as your creatures and now as your servants. We thank you that you have cleansed us. We thank you for the new hearts and spirits within us. And yet, Father God, please, as we think about our lives, to remember that we belong to you. And what a great privilege it is, Father, to be servants of Jesus. Please, let every second of our life point to him. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.